Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me from the Radio Art Radio Foundation Studio in Manhattan is Professor Carol Birkin of Baruch College and of the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And today we're going to talk about her book, Revolutionary Mothers, Women in the Struggle for America's Independence. Carol, welcome to the journal. Thank you very much. I must say, I find your book a most welcome addition to my library shelf, especially since uh, you not only talk about revolutionary women and what they did, but you include the fact that there are women from the South. (laughs) I'm one of them, so I had to do that. (laughs) I love the things that you said, not just through the whole book, but in your introduction and pointed out there were more women involved than Betsy Ross, Molly Pitcher, and Abigail Adams. Right. The the big three that usually appear if women are mentioned in Story of the Revolution at all. Right, right. One of them is entirely imaginary, and the other two, one, one has her profession degraded from uh, noted upholsterer to seamstress, and the other never said what they claim she said. So, so far we're batting zero <laughs> when it comes to the women who are mentioned. Well, and, of course, the first one was Molly Pitcher, Imaginary, and then Betsy Ross, and then, you mean Abigail Adams wasn't the first suffragist? No, no. Sorry to say she was. In my darker moments, though I'm a big fan of Abigail, I I tell people if it had been around, she would have subscribed to Ladies' Home Journal. I mean, she, she was asking for women's legal rights to control their own property they brought into the marriage. It never occurred to her to ask for the vote. Uh, much as I'd like to make claims, I think we can't invent things just because we want them to be true. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's, let's go back to you grew up in Mobile, Alabama, and let's talk about how you got to where you are today. <laughs> Well, first of all, my father was from Lenox Avenue and 137th Street, and my mother was from Connecticut. And by a long and elaborate story that requires at least two glasses of wine, they wound up in Mobile, Alabama, and loved it. Uh, For me, it it was not a really good fit. I'd like to first of all say Mobile is one of the most beautiful places in the world, and I return regularly. My brother still lives there, but... I was sort of like Waldo in Where's Waldo, looking for Waldo land, and I knew New York was it for me. So I came to college in New York, and I really, I never, I never left. I never left Manhattan, and it's the right place for me to live, even though my family still says, when are you coming home? Oh, I, I get that question, too, but I'm very much rooted here in South Carolina. Right. Uh, I just in t- another really beautiful city. Right? <laughs> yes. But working on the revolution, the colonial period was beginning to pass out of fashion in, in, in the graduate school by then. Everything, everybody was going to do 20th century. Exactly. Exactly. At Columbia, people said, uh, you know, you have to work with someone in the 20th century. You have to do 20th century history. And so I came up with my very sarcastic line. I said, anything after the typewriter was invented is mere journalism. (laughs) I didn't, I really didn't want to join the trend. And I was very fortunate because Richard Morris, Mm -hmm. who I think is the grand old man of colonial history, was there and, and said he would be delighted to take this uh, girl from Alabama on as his student, and he was uh, just a wonderful mentor, and he understood my real love of an era when people had to make unbelievably critical choices in their life, when they had to, uh, especially in the Revolution, where sisters and brothers never spoke to each other again. Where, I mean, it was such an extraordinary moment, and, and he appreciated that that was what I wanted to do. Thank goodness. Well, you and I had similar experience. George, Rod, the late George Rogers here at the University of South Carolina not only uh, moved me back from the Civil War to the colonial period, but also very specifically to South Carolina, and I've, mm-hmm. I've never regretted that, that mm-hmm. move at all. 
Isn't it wonderful to have lived a long life and think I've been doing exactly what I wanted to do for four decades? Or it, it, I think we're both very fortunate. Well, we are, and of course we can all smile because the colonial period is now back in fashion. Uh, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, if you wait long enough, save those bell bottoms; they're going to come back in style. If it, Part of the reason is that people have now, I think, begun to understand that you can't start in the middle of the escalator. You know, you can't start with industrialization and understand American history. You really have to, while I don't advise going back to the Garden of Eden, it does seem to me that you really need to understand early American history to understand what came after it. And I think people are beginning to have a greater appreciation of, of that fact. And that's why I think colonial history and early national history are really uh, blooming at the moment. Well, they are. And it warms my heart to see younger scholars now in the field because for a long time, and especially those of you who were doing women's history, you really were out in the wilderness. Yeah, um. <laughs> we could have met in a phone booth. <laughs> you know, when when Mary Beth and Linda and uh, Lane Crane and I started doing this work, uh, we we were a small. We like to say a select group, but really we were just a small group. And I was told several times, believe it or not, by well-meaning male friends, you know, you had such a good career going why would you why would you risk it on something like this and i it only made me more interested in writing about women well i want to get into your book and i'll just open it by saying when i did partisans and redcoats which came out a few years before yours i mm-hmm. i began to include stories of women and there is someone we both know in our field actually i saw him at a convention and he said you used all those women's stories. You know that Miss Ellis, that, that, that was taken years later. Those were all exaggerations. And I said, I'm sorry, what about the veterans' accounts? Right. I said, they were done later. And he said, oh, well, that was experience. I said, the women experienced it too. And I said, by the way, I'm a veteran, and I know war stories tend to grow yes. on the male side of the line. <laughs> anyway, he just couldn't figure yes. out why on earth I had those Scots-Irish women. Uh, right, Like Mar- right. Martha Bratton. You know, and this is 2001, and I was just absolutely flabbergasted. He, did, well, he didn't he, mind using Landrum and all those other things, but, you know, Miss Ellett was strictly forbidden. Right. Not acceptable. Well, she wasn't a real historian. She was just a lady who wrote these accounts. Uh, you know, this fight, sad to say, still still really goes on, not as extensively in the profession, but you'll still encounter people who consider what you're writing about. Oh, it just comes from ladies' letters. I was thinking, well, where do you think male history comes from? On the Oh, well, that comes from government documents. And there's still an enormous bias that if it's official, then it's definitely true. Uh, and if it's in private correspondence, meh, who knows? And unless, I think that women suffer from that. Yeah, unless it was written by Thomas Jefferson or Henry. Right, Warren. then it's uh, then it's the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get to your book. I really like to read the whole thing off on the air. I mean, I just, <laughs> Carol, because you really deal with the home front, and there's one chapter. I mean, it's actually chapter three. You can form no idea of the horrors, and that's in quotations. Right. The challenges right. of the home front war. And then you have, well, you quote, two South Carolinians, among many others, Eliza Lucas Pinckney. Mm-hmm. And hers are fairly general. But then you get to Eliza Wilkinson, and her yes. words are just really gripping. And I agree. Do, do you happen to have a copy of your book with you, Bunny? I have it. On my person, I'm just looking. You know, this was written quite a while ago, and so I thought, well, gee, I better catch up on it. And I was starting to read it, and I thought, I'm really glad I wrote this book. I really am. It stands up for me as something that I still, I don't mean to 
toot my own horn, but it stands up for me as something that people need to know. And especially someone like Wilkinson, who the revolution has been so um, romanticized. You know, it's there's no blood, there's no there's no guts, there's no suffering. It's just a lot of men marching around in nice uniforms, and we all know the Americans are going to win. Some people think single-handedly, and and it has this kind of um, sepia-colored veneer that makes it just you know nothing like real war. And then you read these accounts by women. I remember a woman from uh, Massachusetts who said that when the British soldiers marched through her town, they stole the buckles off my shoes. Uh, You you know, there's this kind of um, graphic, real impact of, of a military feeling that it can do anything it wants. And the accounts of gang rapes as the British Army moved from New York to Philadelphia of of mothers and daughters being raped together by these British soldiers that have have simply not fit this romantic image of the American Revolution with Lafayette with plumes in his hat. And, and so I thought it was really important to take a look at this war, which I think in many ways was as brutal. Certainly no one had machine guns or or the weapons of mass destruction we have today, but it was as, in many ways, up close and personal. You know, when you use a bayonet, you're really right there with the other person. And I I thought it was really important for those of us who were interested in this to, to remind people that it was a real war. And certainly... You, your work, the work of people who've done studied the war in the South, know that it was in fact a civil war and a very bloody one. At oh yeah, at that, and of course, the one film about the Revolution that portrays it as bloody as it was was The Patriot, which has got a lot of things wrong about it historically. Yeah, many things wrong with but, it. Yes. But but the fact that it depicts how brutal it was. Yes is yes. absolutely true. And so that's to the point that you were making earlier, is everybody wants to say how nice and gentlemanly everybody was. Right, right. Um, you y- can hear Barry Lyndon music in the background, you know, for... <laughs> for, for and it, it's interesting because you can sort of understand why. Having gone through World War One and World War Two and Vietnam, and people really want a sort of heroic, I call them birth myths, a heroic story about about the American past when everybody agreed on everything and everything was was simpler, as if really, for instance, surviving on the frontier in the 17th century was simpler as opposed to really brutish. There's a wonderful line in, in the Rutman, look at demography in, in Virginia, in the Chesapeake, and he says, life was short and brutish. And people don't want to, I guess, don't want to hear that, but I do think it's our obligation as historians to tell the real story. We're going to get into some specific stories. Carol, why don't you turn to page 35 of your book at the bottom? It's starting with Eliza Wilkinson and read that passage description. There are two paragraphs there, I think, that our listeners need to, Mm -hmm. to hear. Perhaps the most vivid and chilling account of looting came from Eliza Wilkinson, whose worst fear of the invasion of British and Loyalist troops proved all too real. Helpless to prevent the soldiers from entering her home, she pleaded with the in quotes, inhumane monster who had my clothes and begged him to spare me only a suit or two, but I got nothing but a curse for my pains. Nay, so far was his callous heart from relenting that casting his eyes toward my shoes, I want them buckles, said he. Wilkinson's nightmare was not over, however. Looters returned to her home taking what they wanted and destroying what they did not need. We have been humbled to the dust, she wrote, again plundered, worse than ever plundered. Our very doors and window shutters were taken from the house and carried aboard the vessels which lay in the river opposite our habitation. The sashes beaten out, 
furniture demolished, goods carried off, beds ripped up, stock of every kind driven away, in short, distresses of every nature attended us. Writing of her despair and depression, Eliza Wilkinson captured the feelings of many women left alone to face the brutality and violence of the war. The whole world appeared to me as a theater where nothing was acted but cruelty, bloodshed, and oppression, where neither age nor sex escaped the horrors of injustice and violence, where lives and property of the innocent and inoffensive were in continual danger, and the lawless power ranged at large. That is a very gripping account. You've got many others, and we'll go to them, but I thought the fact that she was from South Carolina, and let's go back to Andy Jackson's mother, Elizabeth Hutchinson Jackson. She went to Charleston to nurse neighbors on the prison ships and died of ship's fever. Right. She's buried in in an unmarked grave somewhere on the peninsula of Charleston. And you've got my one of my favorite heroines, Jane Black Thomas from right. from Spartan right. District. You've got one account and I don't believe you had the account of her ride. Uh, no. She did one of those those warnings. Her husband who was commander of the Spartan regiment was captured and was imprisoned at 96 and so she, mm-hmm. he got sick. She went down to take care of him. Heard some English officers' wives talking about there was going to be a raid. You know, they're going to go after the Spartan regiment. So this woman who is over 60, you very kindly called her middle-aged. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) But but in 1780, 81. 60 was old, yes. Was old. She stole a horse, rode it 50 miles through enemy-occupied territory to warn the Spartan regiment that the British were coming, and they, in turn, ambushed the British at the first Battle of Cedar Springs. Right, right, So, right. you know, I've often told folks, now, what is more heroic, this old woman doing that, and compare that to Paul Revere riding a couple of miles down a paved turnpike saying right. the British and, are coming. And being captured. He never really made that ride. There's a a young, I think I tell her story, there's a young girl in Putnam County, New York, Sybil Luddington, and she is referred to, when she's referred to at all, as the female Paul Revere. But she actually made the ride. She rode through the entire county, Putnam County, to her father's uh, militiamen to rouse them to come and and muster so that they could go help the Americans at Danbury. So I always, when I give that talk, I always say, well, Paul Revere should really be called the male Sybil Luddington. Uh, the, the only thing I will say is having read so many accounts of these women who made these rides, no one ever rides out on a nice, clear night. Almost every one of these accounts begins, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> and I'm thinking, no one, they couldn't catch a break, these women. They all, from Emily Geiger to Sybil Luddington to Deborah Sampson, they all ride out on a dark and stormy night. <laughs> and they are riding through wilderness. If you're riding from 96 in South Carolina to Spartan District, present-day Spartanburg, you're going through the woods. You're not riding on a right, turnpike. Right, 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 one, right. One of the points that you you make, and I, again, I appreciate it, is it wasn't just the fact that the British and the Tories looted. Frequently, if they didn't loot it, they destroyed it. Exactly. One of the things that... I'm not going to defend the British Army, but... A lot of these soldiers were young boys, and they had been dragooned, basically, into being in the army, and they were treated horribly, and and they were paid less than the U.S. soccer team, women's soccer team. They, they were... I want to get my feminist plug in. They, they were told, basically, to the victor belong the spoils, and often they took this to mean not only taking things from the women, but rape. So so they're, they're encouraged in this kind of uncivilized behavior. 
but it's also true that they were on enemy ter- in enemy territory and they the supply line to them was often faulty and so one of the things they did was they took all the furniture out of homes to burn as firewood to keep themselves warm as they were bivouacked as they were out in the fields and so part of the destruction of homes had to do with you know I, we've got to keep warm we've got to be safe we've and so we'll take whatever we find there it's not as if these women could then go to uh, a furniture store and buy buy new furniture it was devastating to the family, but in fact, these men thought that this was their right. Uh, and, and when they didn't uh, need what was in the home, sometimes just out of out of a, a kind of wartime adrenaline rush malice, which certainly those of us who lived through the Vietnam War know, recognized to be something that happens when soldiers think that they are surrounded by enemies and in enemy territory, as these British young soldiers did, sometimes they just destroyed a home just for the sake of a kind of revenge on the Americans. Uh, I, again, I'm not meaning to justify what they do did, but it's another example of the way in which war dehumanizes Uh, people on every side. Carol, we need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking to Professor Carol Birkin about her book, Revolutionary Mothers. Carol, you're talking about the common British soldier, but also the way English officers got promoted was not because of merit, but they had to buy their promotions. Exactly, exactly. And we know that, uh, I mean, Bannister Tarleton has been vilified, and people try to rehabilitate him over in Liverpool. It doesn't quite work, but uh, uh, he was very conscious of the fact that he could make money by stealing slaves, stealing silver, and uh, also he didn't mind seeing uh, women brutalized. In fact, he used to brag about having lain with many women in the Carolinas. Uh, that, That was his term including, by the way, loyalists. He, he and his men roughed up Lady Jane Colleton, who was a, a very famous loyalist, actually mm-hmm. married to a baronet. I mean, she was English aristocracy. And right. um, the women, it, they may not have been raped, but they certainly were slapped around. Uh, right, and right. And he wasn't reprimanded. Well, you know, the other story, a similar story, is when the British occupied Staten Island, when they first arrived with some 33 war boats, and and they housed uh, the army on Staten Island, the commanding officers said with great amusement, uh, it's impossible for a maiden on this island to step out into her garden without being raped. You know, he thought that that was really rather funny. Interestingly, Washington understood that one of the things that turned neutral male Americans into patriots was the behavior of the British Army. Nothing, you know, British tyranny and no taxation without representation didn't move a big chunk of Americans. They just wanted to be left alone. But everywhere the British Army went, new recruits joined Washington's army. And one of the things that he was smart enough to do was try his very best and succeed in many cases, in most cases, to make his soldiers behave, to make sure that they did not do what the British army did. Uh, At one point in Washington's quartermaster books, He says that American soldiers in a little town had gone skinny-dipping in a lake near the town to the shock of the women and and, uh, disgust of the women in the town. And he issues this order, and he says, absolutely, you may not do that. You may not upset the sensibilities and the decency of these women anymore. 
because he understood that if the American army was seen as uh, behaving in contrast to the British army, that that was really good, we would call it today, uh, propaganda or good imagery. Uh, and so to some extent, the British army's behavior was one of the great recruiting mechanisms for the American army. And it certainly was in South Carolina. There was no attempt to win the hearts and minds of the populace. They thought right. that, that uh, Clinton and his lieutenants like Tarleton and Weems and Kruger, the heel of the boot was right, right. what they, they did. And there was a fascinating prayer that I, that I found. That, it's called the Prayer of the Presbyterian Elder, but Carol, it sends, says exactly what you were talking about. Uh, and this was used in Presbyterian churches in the greater Catawba River Valley from Camden, South Carolina, up to Salisbury in North Carolina. And it's, Good Lord our God who art in heaven, we have reason to thank thee for the many favors received at thy hands, the many battles that have been won. There's the one great and glorious battle at King's Mountain where we killed the great General Ferguson and took his whole army, and the great battle of Ramsers and Williamson's, and the ever-memorable and glorious battle of the Calpins, where we made the proud General Tarleton run down the road hilter-skilter. And good Lord, if you had not suffered the cruel Tories to burn Billy Hill's ironworks, we had not asked any more favors at thy hands. Amen. <laughs> the last thing, had they not burned Billy Hill's ironworks, we wouldn't, right. have, we wouldn't have been going to King's Mountain. Right, right. Um, so, and... And as you know, Ferguson had also threatened the Overmountain men with uh, what might happen to their wives if if they continued yeah, to fight. Yeah. The, the, when you the the resonances to modern day, I mean the analogies, and I'm always very careful because the 18th century is not the 21st century. I don't like facile, uh, but. You know, when you hear someone say, well, I would kill their their wives as, and their families as well as their, you know, the terrorists themselves. And I think that is not a way to, to win recruits to your side. And the British never really understood their contempt for Americans and for, for the American leadership, their contempt for... Uh, the American Army was really astounding, and I think um, one of the reasons for for their failure ultimately. Well, you know that's one thing that I have a hard time getting people to understand is if you were a colonial, and I say it made no difference if you were a colonial in Africa, the Caribbean, in Asia, or in what is now the United States, you were a colonial. Right. And no matter your wealth, your education, your breeding, what have you, you were not as good as the meanest Yorkshire farmer. You and know that where you see that the strongest and most vividly is the elite loyalists who went into exile in England. Uh, my first book was about one of these men, Jonathan Sewell, who was the attorney general of of Massachusetts and a vice admiralty court judge and a wealthy fellow, and he goes to England, and he realizes that he is nothing in their eyes, that he is treated as the same kind of colonial bumpkin that anybody would have been treated as. And in his case, he actually has a total nervous breakdown as a result. But they were all treated with such contempt by by the British that and and it must have finally dawned on them that what they had given up that is their homeland their in many cases their brothers and sisters their family for a country that viewed them as absolutely uh, disposable figures even though they did quote compensate them you know the the, the loyalist transcripts right uh, right of the the Compensation Commission, I guess you would call it. Yes, uh, yes. Fascinating resources. Uh, yes. But you see what people gave up, and some of them were elite. And in, in the case of South Carolina, they ranged from free person of color to a tavern keeper to mm -hmm. a wealthy planter. And the poor farmer from the German, from the back country is claiming so many hogs, you know, what have right. you, a barn. But well, the British did, the British government did 
compensate loyalists, but they couldn't compensate them for the way in which they were viewed mm -hmm. as especially these members of the elite who expected to be recognized for their accomplishments and for their breeding and for their education, who were really uh, in the eyes of, of the British public and in the eyes of the British aristocracy, they were really just colonials, no matter what they thought they were. And, and most of these men retreated to, as one person called it, Nova Scarcity, retreated to Nova Scotia because their treatment in England, in addition to it being extremely costly to survive there, their treatment was really devastating to their egos. Let's get back to the ladies. We've been talking sure. about the boys. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I don't want to ask you who's your favorite heroine, but I will. <laughs> Give me two or three. Maybe okay. Eliza Wilkinson is one of them. Yes, but my my two favorite stories are the story of Mammy Kate, who I I just love. If you were raised as I was in a household that revered gun smoke, you know that whenever they were planning to uh, make a jailbreak for someone who was unjustly put in prison. They would ride to the outskirts of town, and they would, I always say, park their horses. I know that you don't park a horse, but I'm not a rider. They would tie up their horses, and if they needed another horse, they would go into town and steal one and bring it out, and then there'd be this great prison break. Mammy Kate was this large, imposing black woman who was a slave to a man named Stephen Hurd of Georgia who was a very petite, very small man. And he was captured, and he was put in prison in Augusta, and they planned to execute him. And Mammy Kate took his horse and rode to Augusta, and, and like James Arness and the Heroes of Gunsmoke, she tied the horse up outside of town, and then she stole another horse and tied it up outside of town. And she goes into town with a basket on her head, a laundry basket, a great big basket, and she goes to the British soldiers at the garrison, and she says, I'm a poor black woman, but I'm a great uh, laundress and ironer, and, and if you would give me your uniforms and your clothes, I would take care of them very cheaply. And they say, sure. And so for a couple of weeks, she would put the stuff, dirty stuff in her basket and bring back the clean stuff to them. And this went on for a couple of weeks. Everybody knew her. And finally, she says, you know, would you let me go into the prison and, and see if there were any prisoners there who had any valuables that they would trade for me doing their laundry? And they said, sure, Mammy Kate, go ahead. And she goes into Stephen Hurd's cell and she takes out his laundry, and she brings it back, and she takes out his laundry, and she brings it back. And one day she goes into the cell, and she puts the basket on her head. And what's in the basket? Stephen Hurd is in the basket. And she goes to these two horses that are tied up outside of town, and they ride off to freedom. And he becomes the first governor of, of Georgia once independence is won. And I just it's just such a wonderful, zany story, and it speaks to, to two, I think, serious issues. The ways in which women could use their identity as sort of uh, uh, irrelevant in warfare and, and not involved in politics to get away with things, but also to the fact that there were slaves who were deeply devoted to the family who they worked for. And Mammy Kate was one of them. Stephen Hurd freed her and her entire family, and she is actually buried in the Hurd family cemetery. So uh, I, I think it has that kind of ambiguity and complexity, but it's also just such a, a riotous story. Uh, the, the second one is, is equally zany, if you will. There was a woman named Nancy Hart, also in Georgia, seemed to produce these stories, uh, who one branch of the family says she was old, one branch says she was young, one says she was blonde, one says she was... But, this, but the story remains relatively, in its essentials, the same. She was 
alone in the family uh, cabin with her daughter while her husband was off fighting with the Patriots. And a band of, some accounts say five, some say seven, uh, loyalist soldiers show up and they demand to be fed. And she says, fine, come in. And she and her daughter go out into the farmyard and she says to her daughter, you go find your daddy and you get him and you tell them to come here and capture these men. And then she slaughtered a pig or killed two chickens. The, the, the disagreement about the menu goes on and on. And in the meantime, she's plying them with liquor. Uh, and so these guys who were hungry and now have had a lot to drink are many sheets to the wind already, and she serves up this very tasty meal, and they come to the table with their bayonets. And she says, oh, no, no, no. Gentlemen do not bring their weapons to my table, so if you want to eat, you put those weapons in the corner, and they all race to put their weapons in the corner, and they sit down to eat, and Nancy Hart picks up one of these guns, and she holds them hostage for three hours until the patriots arrive and capture them. And so the question becomes, why on earth there were five men, seven men, one little old lady, why on earth did no one rush her? Did no one disarm her? And the answer that is given in all these family accounts of this story is that Nancy Hart was incredibly cross-eyed. And the men said no one could figure out who she was aiming at. And so they were all afraid to make a move, which I think is such a... And then apparently she went to the hanging of these loyalist soldiers, each and every one. And at the hanging, it is said that she uh, hummed Yankee Doodle while they were executed. So, I mean, I would have loved to have met that woman. I think she had quite a wry sense of humor. And I think this whole account that they were afraid to make a move because of her vision is is a delicious story. And, and maybe it's exaggerated, but all the family accounts come up with the same explanation. Well, so she's my other favorite. Okay. Well, not only the fact that they might not decide who she was looking at, but in the 18th century, being cross-eyed was also an indication she might be a little bit off. Yes. A little yes, bit nuts, yes, and therefore yes, you don't yes. know what this woman's going to do. Is going to do, exactly. Well, and since she picked up a gun and aimed it at them, they probably quite confident that she was nuts, and in fact, she may very well have been. Uh, uh, but I, these are the kinds of women who, I, I say in the preface to the book, that for a lot of them, they never would have known that they had the kind of uh, bravery and heroism and daring in them if the war hadn't brought that out. And, and so there's story after story of these women who, like men, l like soldiers who perform acts of heroism on the battlefield, who will say, I, I, I never thought of myself as heroic. I never thought that, that the war brought these necessity, in a sense, brought these uh, uh, remarkable acts of strength out in these women uh, who might have never realized that they had it in them. And, and not that I think that's a great reason to have a war, but it is amazing how people rise to the occasion uh, and find resources in themselves that they really didn't think that they had. That brings me to mind the story of Martha Broughton, where she literally faced death uh, the accounts differ, particularly some of the later accounts, as to what she did or did not say to the, the Tory. Uh, right. But all accounts say up in what's it was New Acquisition District then, it's now York County, South Carolina, this Tory patrol, and they were actually part of uh, Tarleton's British Legion. Tarleton was not there. Can't blame this one on Tarleton. Right, right. But she and her, her young son... I think six were standing on the 
porch of the house, which, by the way, is still there. Carol, that cabin is still there up at Brattonsville. Really? Yes. Oh, I'd love to go and visit. It's there at Historic Brattonsville. It's it's a wonderful backcountry farmstead. And here she is. Her husband's off with Sumter, and the Tories want to know where her husband is. And she doesn't reply. And there was a red-headed ruffian, this is the way he is described, (laughs) cursed and said he would make her talk. There was a reaping hook hanging on a peg behind her on the front porch. And again, the porch is still there. There is a peg, whether it was that peg or not is debatable, but mm-hmm. the porch is still there. And with a reaping hook at her neck, a sword at her breast, again, tell me where your husband is. She does not. And mm-hmm. at that point, a Tory officer leaps up and hits the ruffian in the head. But this woman is there with her with her little boy literally clinging to her skirts, mm-hmm. and she's defying the British. And you have another story where she destroys uh, an ammunition cache. Right, uh, right. That's the one that I had. That's another wonderful story. The the chapter is named, it is entitled, From What She Is... Uh, uh, she allegedly said, and I think again it speaks to the it speaks to the male assumption that women and and this wasn't absent in Americans as well, but it does speak to the assumption that that women simply weren't able to um, uh, form any kind of political uh, attachment, any kind of political loyalty, that they weren't able to uh, be engaged in this in this struggle. And so here's a woman who, uh, knowing that she's not able to defend this cache of weapons, uh, you know better than I do that the sort of guerrilla warriors uh, on the Patriot side would, would leave caches of weapons uh, one account says that the favorite place was old rotted trees inside, you know, the trees. But often the women were left to guard these caches of, of, of weapons, and she knew she couldn't protect it. So she did what women actually all across the country, there are accounts of women doing similar things, preferring to destroy their own home or their own possessions rather than let the British get hold of them. And and the story is that she lay down a train of, of powder and set fire to it up to her house and, and caused an explosion. And and the officer comes over and says, Who did this? You know, it's impossible for him to imagine that this woman did this. And her reply is, It is I who did it. And I thought that that just captured the agency or the willingness to act uh, on the part of women everywhere. It's like uh, Catherine Schuyler in New York who burned her entire crop of wheat in order to prevent Burgoyne from getting it. It also meant that she and her dependents and many of the people in the area would go hungry, but she burned it so Burgoyne couldn't get it, and it it played a critical role in the defeat of this starving British army who uh, there are accounts of how desperately hungry they were when they finally surrendered. And so th- the fact that these women were willing, I, I, I keep trying to repeat to people, it's not like they could replace this easily. It's not like you could just grow some more wheat next week or buy some more furniture at Macy's or, uh, you know, replenish what you've gotten rid of. And in fact, these these women chose to destroy rather than to let it fall into enemy hands. And she's a very good example of of this willingness. And, and then, of course, you have Rebecca Bruton Mott here in South yes. Carolina who, yes. who gives the America, the Patriots, the arrows that have right. some... To burn, her, to burn the British out of her home. I just thought that was so 
you know, it ought to be dramatized somewhere of this woman who's been driven out of her home because the British have taken it over, and the American commander saying to her, the only way we can dislodge them is to set fire to the home. Is that all right with you? And not only does she say yes, because... I mean, when you think about it, this is not just her property. This is where her entire life has taken place that is in the home and in the surrounding area to the home. That's what women were in charge of. And she not only says yes, but she takes this this beautiful bow and arrow and she says, here, use this. Uh, that's one of those small acts of bravery and courage that we really need to remember instead of just great things that great generals did. And the politics of it, I know the backcountry wife, Isabella Barbara Ferguson, had a heated argument with her brother-in-law, who was a Tory officer, and Mm -hmm. had to do with what her husband Samuel was going to do. Was he going to join up with the Tories? Right. And she said, my brothers are rebels, and the dog Trip is a rebel too. And she (laughs) she told her husband... She said, now in the presence of the British Army, if you go with them, you may stay with them, for I can no longer be your wife. Mm. This, is, this sentiment is uh, uh, present in New York even before war is declared, when they're in the midst of the boycott on British goods and the engaged women of New York City sign this document, and they publish it in the paper saying, we will not marry a man who does not support the boycott of British goods. Well, well so uh, the, the Lysistrata argument works. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But you just, I mean, what a, what a feisty bunch these women were that they, you know, we're not letting you have any sex unless, unless you agree to support. And, and this runs through a lot of the women's propaganda when when the enlistments in the early years when the enlistments in Washington's army were not extensive enough women wrote these poems and published them in the Philadelphia newspapers that basically said you men are such wusses what's wrong with you why don't you go out and enlist in the army we're not going to have anything to do with a man like you so there's there is a lot of that kind of uh, uh, Shakespearean secondary character behavior in in this. All right, Carol, we've, we, we're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes. What would you hope that the general reader, and this is a book, by the way, not just for scholars, but for general readers, yes. would take away yeah. from Revolutionary Mothers? Well, I hope they would take away from it not only a better understanding of the American Revolution as a home front war and a civil war and the role women played in it, but also take away the larger uh, notion that no story in American history is complete unless it includes women's experience. Uh, I tried to do this with Civil War wives as well to say that you really can't understand the Civil War unless you understand its impact on women and the role of women in it, that you're really only telling a portion of the story unless you include half the half the population. Uh, and so that that, I think, is the bigger piece that I would like people to under, understand. Well, it, it certainly is in terms of the bigger picture of the revolution, and I, it's true throughout the colonies, but certainly here in South Carolina and the South, the war on the home front, uh, in this case the back country, mm-hmm. it's where the war really was won. I tell my friends in Charleston, it began and ended there, but it was won in the back country. And you've right, got right. the patriots, and it being a patriot or a partisan was not uh, just a man or a woman or a person who was free or enslaved. It involved everybody, right. and right. including children like right. young Andy Jackson. Right, so, absolutely. Well, Carol, I hate to say that we're, we've got to sign off, but I really appreciate your being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. I enjoyed it enormously. 
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. I've known Carol for a while. I've known her work even longer. Revolutionary Mothers is a really wonderful book. It's readable, but more than that, when she talks about the revolution, it includes everybody, North and South. It's not just Abigail Adams. It's Eliza Lucas Pinckney. It's not just Molly Pitcher. It's Emily Geiger. It's not just Betsy Ross. It is Rebecca Bruton Mott. So it's a picture of the home front, if you will, and the role many women played in the winning of American independence. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.